Well, the year is 1970. Judy and I had been attending the feast in Big Sandy, Texas for five years. I was now pastoring in West Texas, out in Odessa and Abilene, <clears throat> and we were told we could transfer to the Lake of the Ozarks for the feast. We'd never been to the Lake of the Ozarks, and we were excited. Now we had three children, uh, Julie having been born in Midland. We still hadn't traveled much, though we certainly had enjoyed what little travel we had, including our first two feasts in Jekyll Island, Georgia, where we stayed in rather pleasant hotels, one of them pretty much on the beach, uh, and with running water. In that case, that particular year, it was running through the ceiling because we had just had a hurricane, and uh, that has been somewhat common down through the years as we've had these beach sites. And as a little church history uh, for the younger folks among us, in those days, the church was the travel agent for everybody. You didn't make your own arrangements to go to the feast. Somebody else made them for you. And in our case, uh, it happened to be Mr. Phil Dick's granddad, Mr. Raymond Dick, who was responsible for housing uh, the entire church, in a sense, in the United States and Canada at the feast sites. And that year, there were only three, uh, Squaw Valley, Jekyll Island, and Big Sandy. That is back in 1963 and four. <clears throat> so the church booked all rooms. That was still true in 1970 and several years thereafter. Well, somebody told us that the ministers had all been assigned to one of the nicest places in the Ozarks. Of course, anything like that's relative. We didn't know what that meant necessarily, having never been to the Ozarks. <clears throat> so we arrived at the motel and found it to be a building sitting very near the lake, but a rather plain-looking, simple, concrete block, two-story structure with outside entrances to the rooms, which at that time was very common. Uh, we long since started trying to stay in places that had inside uh, doors to the rooms, but it was outside at that time. Inside, we found two double beds, what the hotel industry generally calls full beds. Uh, and I grew up with full beds. We didn't have anything such as queen-size beds or king-size beds. And of course, in my case, there were many times when there were three of us sleeping in that full bed. So I shouldn't have been very discouraged by a full bed. But again, there were five of us. We started taking our goods in and realized that the closet was a rack about this long, hanging above the TV, metal rack. That's where you hang your clothes. Well, of course, lake motels are not used to people coming with a whole bunch of suits and dresses and all kinds of clothes for a, for a church convention. So it was probably a very typical lakeside motel. Well, we asked for a rollaway bed, and they brought a rollaway bed. Uh, how many of you know what a rollaway bed is? Most of you, good. Younger people might say, what is that? <clears throat> oh, by the way, is Mr. Evans here? Dave, are you here somewhere? There he is, okay. I owe him an apology, though. None of you probably noticed, he did. Um, back the last time I was here, or time before, I think, I mentioned that over in the holy day, I used the term, uh, takes a licking and keeps on kicking, talking, ticking, talking about my Timex watch. And Dave reminded me that most people wouldn't have gotten that joke because it was too old, like me. Anyway, uh, actually, I counted that as a great favor from him, but when I told the story, it made it sound like he got on my case about it. And uh, that was not true at all. He, was, he said he enjoyed the joke very much and laughed, but he wasn't sure everybody got it. And we talked about that, and uh, I didn't realize at the time it might have sounded like I was putting Mr. Evans down, and that certainly was not my intent, nor is it any time I tell these stories that are supposed to be funny and usually aren't. <laughs> the only place the rollaway bed would fit was between the other two, and the other two were more or less against the wall. So we had wall-to-wall -wall beds. We had to crawl in them from the foot. 
and uh, put our three kids in there somewhere. I don't remember now whether because Julie was small, we kept them all in the middle or whether we <laughs> spread them out. But we had the wall-to-wall beds, and uh, the polite way to say this, I suppose, is we were disappointed. Uh, we kind of thought this must be kind of down market. This is a tourist area, and this, this is probably not a very nice hotel. Here, it's our one chance to get out of Big Sandy. Even though we love Big Sandy, it had its own troubles. And we thought this should be a very nice, enjoyable time. And I probably thought we deserve better. After all, I was a church pastor and about to turn 28. I need a little respect here. It felt like Rodney Dangerfield. Now, you don't know him either, right? <laughs> He's even older than I am. Now, today, of course, even today, lots of brethren live in housing that's probably far inferior to what we were enjoying. Uh, but again, we were excited and optimistic and just a little disappointed. But this was a very special feast because my two brothers, both of whom were elders in the church at that time, one in fact a full-time pastor, uh, the three of us all had new babies, all born that same year of 1970. And so we were really anxious to get the family together. That's only a small part of my family, but we had that group together anyway. And uh, one of them, my brother Glenn, was a deacon and a successful businessman with a relatively good income. Uh, and we just really were looking forward to getting together. Well, just before opening day, uh, Glenn uh, saw me at the volunteer meeting at the hall, and he asked if we could come by and see the baby and bring ours. And so we took our kids and went to their place, which he called Eldon Courts. Now, Eldon Courts sounded like a really sophisticated, upscale place. And he had money, so we were looking forward to that. Now, you've, you've probably picked up on this already. It didn't matter how much money you had. Everybody was treated the same, and it was kind of a lottery, and you got what you got. <clears throat> I, I suppose the ministry had been specially assigned, but that's an assumption on my part. So we found a little town outside of the, of the area where the hall was called uh, Eldon, and in Eldon, Missouri... Joel probably knows it well. In Eldon, Missouri, there it was a little row of stone cottages. I mean stone and small stones at that, but stone cottages. And it was called Eldon Courts. And we went to the number on the door. And Glenn came to the door. And we went in. And the room was tiny. And... The air conditioning was tiny. In fact, it was a window unit that didn't really cool the room. It was warm that time and that year. So, of course, being me, I had to go to the bathroom. So I went to the bathroom at some point, and it was tiny. And I came back out and was sort of trying to figure out, do I make a comment about this and express my sympathy or whatever? And, and Glenn looks at me and he said, did you read the sign on the wall? And I said, what sign on the wall? So, of course, I had to go back in. I went back in. Bathroom was a little bit bigger than this lectern. But anyway, I went back in. And on the wall, beside the sink, was a little sign about as big as a post-it note that said, please put curtain inside. And I looked around. And then I realized why he was laughing when he asked me if I read the sign. There's nothing to put the curtain inside. Actually, the shower was just that. It was a faucet on the wall with a curtain across the middle of the room, and the drain was in the middle of the bathroom. So the water came out of the shower and ran into the drain, you know, beside the sink. So there was no curb. There was nothing to, there was nothing to put the curtain inside of. And so we started laughing together, and, and, you know, they thankfully had a good attitude and I think enjoyed their feast in spite of their surroundings. But what do you suppose I had to do? Well, I had to go back to my luxury hotel and repent. Because my self-concern, my own attitude about physical, material things, had overtaken my recognition that we are at the Feast of Tabernacles for spiritual reasons, spiritual purposes, and I don't have to have luxury accommodations. 
I have since, by the way, had many very luxurious com uh, accommodations, and sometimes it helps, but it doesn't always make the feast uh, that much different. The feast is the feast, regardless of what your circumstances. And the point of the story is that even though sometimes, uh, even when we're doing okay, even when we're probably thinking fairly normally, our focus can be off just a little bit. Or maybe it can be off a lot. I've been there too. Maybe it was off a lot that day. We probably remember Mr. Burnett giving a sermonette a few weeks ago in which he talked about our pattern of thinking and gave us some guidance on keeping our pattern of thinking on the right, in the right frame of reference. He emphasized that our pattern of thinking must be aligned with the goal, the end result, the consequences we desire, or we're not going to get there. The finished product is going to be pretty much what we allow it to be by the way we plan or don't plan. So today I want to talk about one aspect of those thinking patterns. We're going to talk today about setting our affections on things above. Setting our affections on things above, and we will deal with that, of course, from the scripture itself. And I'm going to only mention, I've, I've numbered a few topics, but only a handful. We could make a long list, but I have only mentioned a few, and we will cover a few of those topics that perhaps we should spend more time thinking about. And, of course, they're only representative of the things that we can think about, and you might choose a different list. Let's start with the actual instruction from the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. When I was preparing this sermon initially, I was using the King James, and I was pleased to find when I went to the New King James, which is my normal reading Bible, that <clears throat> the scripture actually sort of says what it means. Colossians 3, verse 1, If you then, if then you were raised with Christ, <clears throat> seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, your life is different now. Your old life of being worried about material, physical things went out the window when you were called and converted and your life is now totally different and guided and directed by Christ and the Father. So set your mind or your affections, as the King James says it, and I titled the sermon thus, set your affections on things above Affections are setting your mind on things above means to put your focus on them, to be disposed toward them, to be receptive to them, to think about them, to prioritize, if you will, spiritual things. We learned that early on in our Christianity, and I hope we retain that perception and that concept that we should be thinking about spiritual things. Set your mind on things on the, in the above, not on things on the earth. Can you imagine how the world would look if everybody, if every man, woman, and child in the world were seeking things above, not things on the earth? We wouldn't have to be too concerned about things like burglary, would we? <clears throat> but man doesn't do that, and man can't do that. And yet God, in his grace and mercy toward humanity as a whole and toward us in particular, has made it possible for you and me to think differently. He's given you and me the power to think about things above, even to set our affections, our mind on things above. He's given us the spirit of love and of power and of a sound mind. Not going to discuss that any further directly, but let's review briefly the history of mankind and how man thinks. In Genesis chapter 6, I'm sure you know it well, particularly if you, if you think and study the way I hope you do, you are able to contrast the world and its 
priorities with the church or the truth of God and the priorities that it contains. And in Genesis 6, we find God himself declaring that man is hopelessly out of sync with God. Chapter 6, verse 1, came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. And it goes through that process that is not cohabitation. But coming down to verse 5, it says, Then the Eternal saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now keep that in mind because it's referenced in a New Testament verse later. But every thought or the intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and grieved in his heart. So God looked at man and judged the circumstances and said man is basically completely off track. He's so off track that he is creating total chaos in the world and he deserves and needs to be destroyed so that we can start over. And that's, of course, what God did. But his thoughts were only evil continually. Now, I, I'm reminded that at the feast in Park City, we heard probably three or four times during that feast, maybe five times, people refer to Proverbs 14, verse 12, and there is an accompanying 1625. But the Proverbs say, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the way of death. So man's way left to himself will always bring him to death. It is not possible for man to walk in the right way, and we're told that in various scriptures as well. Let's go to Psalm 10. I don't want to linger too long here. <clears throat> I haven't checked my stopwatch yet, but I'll have to soon. Psalm 10 and verse 4. Psalm 10, verse 4. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Now, if you're reading the King James, it says God is not in all of his thoughts. And when I first read that in the King James, I thought, is that, that isn't what it means. It means it's not, God's not in any of their thoughts. And sure enough, when I went to the New King James, a better translation in this case, it says God is in none of his thoughts. Man isn't thinking about God at all in the true sense. Oh, sure, we have plenty of religion in the world and lots of so-called Christianity in the world, but man isn't thinking about God. He's thinking about himself. <laughs> Reminds me of an old story. I think I heard way back in Spokesman Club 40 or 50 years ago when somebody says, we spend a lot of time in front of the mirror worried about what we look like because people are going to be looking at us and thinking about what we look like, and that's not really true at all. They're thinking about themselves and what they look like. And that's probably mostly true. We tend to think differently. God is not in all of his thoughts. God is not in any of his thoughts. The wicked in his proud countenance, it says. I think the, new, the old King James says the wicked in his pride. You know, he's not wicked because he has pride. I said that backwards. I need to set my affections on things that are right. Okay. He does not have pride because he's wicked. In other words, he's not wicked first and then he develops pride in his wickedness. No, he's wicked because of his pride. That is, he thinks about himself. He thinks more highly of himself than he ought to think. He puts himself in a position of a, a Korah or somebody and he says, I, I deserve this. And he does what he wants to do to make himself comfortable. Now, we probably never think of ourselves as wicked in that sense. And and I'm glad that we don't, because as Christians, we surely should not be classed with the wicked, though occasionally we will do wrong. We will do evil. We will sin. We will fall short. So while we're not, in that sense, among the wicked, does our pride, our proud countenance ever prevent us from seeing our own sins, from seeing where we fall short? 
or can we be honest with ourselves and acknowledge that we are, in fact, not able to do anything? As we heard in the sermonette, Christ said, I can of my own self do nothing. Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, verse 9. Well, I'm sorry, let's start in verse 8. Here's the way God says it, and we should take heed. Isaiah 55, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Eternal. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, he gives a pretty clear example there. As the heavens are high above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thoughts, God's mind, God's purpose, God's existence is so far beyond anything we comprehend that we should never ever think we know more about something than God does or that we understand ourselves better than God does or that we should tweak just a little bit what God said. Now, of course, we have to know what God said before we can think about tweaking it, but we should not think about it once we understand what God tells us. We can't reason around it. Well, we can, but we need not. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. After a lifetime of, at least an adult lifetime, of trying to overcome my human nature, seeing my human nature, experiencing my human nature, fighting my human nature, I don't have any trouble understanding that statement, that my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. There's no question in my mind at all that God's thoughts, every thought of God, is higher than any thought of mine. So where shall we start to set our minds or our affections on things above? What are our priorities? I suggest today, and I'm going to give you four or five points, actually five, so don't get worried when we get there that we're going to seven. We're not. Uh, five points, I believe, on things that we might consider as priorities in thinking on things above. Number one is pretty obvious, and especially this time of the year, and that is Matthew 6:33. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We can't seek the kingdom of God unless we're thinking about it. And we're not going to be seeking it unless we're prioritizing it. And it becomes virtually a constant state of mind. Now, obviously, in the physical material world, we are occasionally focused on something very physical and very short term, very temporary to the point that we're not actually actively thinking, I'm, I'm seeking the kingdom of God. So, don't beat yourself up if, if I say it should be a constant state of mind and you think, well, I don't do that all the time. No, none of us can do that all of the time. But in the background, the, the cover of our lives is the kingdom of God. One great blessing of the feast that we just kept is that we are immersed in the context of the kingdom of God. We are thinking about the kingdom of God. We're told about the kingdom of God. We're taught about the kingdom of God. We're encouraged and exhorted by our mutual fellowship about becoming part of the kingdom of God and being the brethren and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. So it becomes, in a sense, a constant state of mind, both in the formal services and in the various activities in which we participate. Sometimes we let our minds go a little bit too far into the world, even at the feast, and people will consider certain entertainments and treats for the feast that they can't afford the rest of the time that probably end up being inappropriate. But by the same token, our cautions can be overdone. I, I told this story a couple of weeks ago, too. I'm sorry for those of you who are hearing this sermon for the second time, but I, I didn't want to ignore what I considered a very important personal uh, lesson. I was humbled by a four-year-old during the feast many, many years ago. When we talk about our hearts being attuned to seeking God's kingdom all year round, but especially we do before, during, and after the Feast of Tabernacles that we think about it, 
Uh, we were keeping the feast in that same lake of the Ozarks years later when <clears throat> Andy and Lisa's oldest daughter, Stacy, was just about four. I don't remember exactly. Of course, she's born in February, so maybe three and a half. Uh, and we were driving from our condo or house to the church building, and we asked Stacy if she wanted to ride along. And she did. And so we put her in the car. In those days, it was bench seats and regular seat belts and all that, but we put her in between us in the car. And on the way to church, seven or ten minutes, we were talking. And at some point, I asked her, what did you do this morning? Or maybe Mom did. I asked her, what did you do this morning? And she told us we had breakfast, we did this, and we played cards. And I said, oh, you and your dad. Nobody here would really believe this, but Mr. Burnett's a games person. Any kind of game, anytime, anywhere. He mentioned contacting him about pickleball. I wouldn't be surprised to find out it's his responsibility to manage that affair. <laughs> At any rate, Andy was always playing games. And he played games with his girls all the time. And Stacy said, we played cards. And I said, well, what kind of card game were you playing? And of course, I'm just making conversation, I think. I should have remembered that. <laughs> because I said, what kind of card game did you play? And she said, we played war. And me, being somewhat of the self-righteous, careful, self-disciplined individual that I am, trying to keep the feast with a pure mind, said, you played war? Stacy, did your dad remind you that during the feast we're talking about God's kingdom when it's peace and happiness and there will be no war? And I'm driving. And I look over at Stacy and she looks up and says, Granddad, it's just a game. And that has stuck with me, and I tell it to you, because in a sense, again, we can become overly focused on things that we think are right and good, and sometimes we can overlook the obvious. And <clears throat> I would not dare to criticize Andy for playing cards with his kids nowadays. He's my pastor. <clears throat> but our hearts and minds should be attuned to God's kingdom at all times, uh, and right after the feast, a good time to lodge that in our brains and keep in mind that whatever comes next month, next year, between now and next feast, our minds are on the kingdom of God and the purpose for which God has called us. God gave the feast and the holy days to us to learn to love and fear him, and that's keeping our minds on the kingdom of God. Successful Christians, successful Christians, happy, positive, effective Christians, no matter what their trials or troubles, are thinking in the context of the kingdom of God on some level at virtually all times. You can't divorce yourself from that context. If you do, you're going to get in trouble. Number two goes hand in hand with that. Number two is the law of God. The law of God. If we think forward to the kingdom of God, the activity, all the activity in the kingdom of God is going to be absolutely in harmony with the law of God. It will be governed by the law of God. Hence, our lives now and then are going to be governed by the law of God. It's something on which we should set our affections. It's not something that I probably considered it the first 10 years of my converted life. That is, that law that I got to watch out for because it's going gonna, it's gonna to sneak up and bite me, and it did many times. But you tend to think of the law almost as an enemy, which is why Paul had to say, no, the law is holy and just and good. We should set our affections on God's law and love the law. Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22. This, of course, is a very instructive section on, of commentary on the law coming from Christ himself. Verse 36, Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. 
and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So everything that really is in here, everything we believe, everything we stand on, everything we live and practice hangs on those two laws. Love toward God, zealous, wholehearted love toward God, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So kind of hard to think about setting our affections on anything higher than that, anything greater than that, other than obviously God and Christ themselves. We think about the kingdom of God that is coming. We think about the law of God by which that kingdom is going to be governed. And we remember principles like the one mentioned, and I won't turn there, in Psalm 119, 165, among many other precious verses in Psalm 119, is the statement, great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. Or in the King James, nothing shall offend them. Nothing's going to cause you to stumble if you love God's law. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to trip once in a while. doesn't mean you're not going to have a little challenge here and there. It, it means you're not going to fall away. It means you're not going to fall down and not get up. Loving God's law is a tremendous part of being a Christian. Romans chapter 7. <clears throat> we learn so incredibly much, of course, from the Apostle Paul, who lived an incredible life. Romans chapter 7, I have to skip through here a little bit. Let's skim it. Verse 12, Romans 7, verse 12. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Holy and just and good. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. It's on a higher level. It's one of those things above. The law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. In other words, a slave to sin. Coming down to verse 25 or 24, he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, and there it is, setting my mind. With the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So the mind has to govern and overcome the flesh, which tends to go the way that seems right to a man. So if I set my affections on the law and keeping the law, not out of, in a sense, the fear of every... Uh, little mistake I might make will get me in trouble or they'll cause this or that, but the love of God that gives me the idea that I can fulfill God's law, that I can live the way God lives, and that I can enjoy at least part of the benefits now that are going to be given to everyone when God's kingdom is established. Both the physical rulership over mankind on the earth and, of course, ultimately, the new heavens and the new earth and everything that revolves around God's purpose and plan. Love of the law is a part of the love that is expressed by God through the law. The Apostle John makes it pretty clear in 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. We know this section very well, but I'll read it because it's so important to our thinking. 1 John 2, verse 15. Again, remember, we're setting our mind or our affections. That is, we are focusing our lives on something bigger than we are, something bigger than our world is even, something bigger than mankind. We're focusing our minds on something beyond where we function and live today. Verse 15, 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. That's basically the same statement from John that Paul made. Paul said, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. John says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And how many things can we track down to those three causes? Almost everything physical and material we do. 
if it's outside God's law. It all traces back to these items, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. See, those are kind of intangibles too, but they are motives for doing the things that we do. Those are not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Again, Paul repeats that in different words that we'll read a little bit later if we have time. This is a choice we make. Every time we control our thoughts, instead of allowing them to drift off where they want to go or be attracted by this or that or the other thing and get involved in something that's irrelevant, Every time we control them, it's a choice we make to love not the world, but to love the Father. It's a constant, active Christianity. And the best way to put worldly thoughts out is to put godly thoughts or things above in. So we have to constantly be making that choice. What are we going to think about? Now, I have found, since I gave this sermon in Sherman two weeks ago, that I've been bombarded by stupid thoughts and by crazy distractions to the point I've had to ask myself, is, is this just happening coincidentally? Or do I actually have a, a real enemy that's throwing these things in front of me? Because sometimes it's stupid stuff. I was sitting at breakfast yesterday, I didn't tell my wife this and she won't, she won't hear any more than I'm telling you. I was, well maybe she will. Depends on how hard she works at it. But anyway, I was sitting at breakfast and my mind started going back 50, no, 60. Yeah, 60. We just kept our 60th feast. I went back 60 years or 62 years to when I was 18 and 19 in the fraternity. And some of the songs we sang and some of the jokes we told, and they were terrible. And there's no reason in the world for those to come to mind. But they did. And you have to push that out and, you know, start doing something else, <laughs> thinking about scripture or singing a hymn or doing something positive. Um, even eating is better. But it's almost like it, it just hits you and sometimes it's, it's really crazy. Today, we got away from home a little later than we usually do coming here. And I said, you know, we're gonna be kind of tight. And we got up to the main street and the street was backed up through two whole lights to get to the freeway, which is becoming a problem in Anna, Texas because it's growing faster than the state can keep up with. So uh, had to sit through two or three lights just to get to the freeway and what, what happens? Well, the, the human way that seems right comes into play and you start saying, why do I have to sit here? Come on, let's get this fixed. You people in front, go. Uh, you know, you're waiting too long at the light. Uh, what was wrong with the engineers when they built this intersection? You know, you're, you, you just start blaming everybody. And now I didn't voice any of that, but I felt my mind doing that. Well, maybe I did voice just a little bit of it. She nodded, okay. And then I said, that's crazy. Well, we got through the first light and I had to stop at the second one. And I said, well, I think I need to practice what I preach and set my affections on things above. And my very helpful wife looked up and said, there's a flying J. You didn't find that funny? I thought that was hilarious. A flying J. There's a truck stop right at that intersection, and the sign is right in front of us, and I got to go through there and turn. And I said, I need... Either you're hopeless or I am, so let's forget that. Today, of course, our nation is engaged in a very ugly political environment and the battle goes on many days even after our election. We've been cautioned not to get caught up in such matters and I hope we listen to that caution because that is one of the ways that Satan convinced us that we, we got a duty here, we, we've got we to fix our nation. No, we don't have to fix our nation. We can't fix our nation. We can't even fix our local schools. We can't fix anything. God is going to have to fix it all. We can, we can fix ourselves with God's help. That is, we can let God fix us and function the way we ought to, and that will contribute to a little bit of improvement in our neighborhood, but that's about it. We need to embrace God's counsel about leadership and what true leadership is. I will call it number three, God's righteous, perfect leadership. 
God's righteous, perfect leadership. Turn with me to Psalm 118, if you will. Psalm 118, verse 8. Psalm 118, verse 8. I'm sure you've heard this preached many times, not new to us. It is better to trust in the eternal than to put confidence in man. <laughs> that seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? Uh, better to trust in the eternal than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the eternal than to put confidence in princes, even. Not just man, but princes, the leaders of men. We trust in God, not in man. Not only not in self, but not in princes. Not in powerful, charismatic leaders. Well, it doesn't mean we don't submit to some of the things that they have authority over, but it means that we do not look to them as our saviors or our protectors or defenders in the true sense because they don't have the capacity to provide those services. Our government cannot protect and defend you and me. Our government cannot make us really more comfortable. Our government can't solve our economic problems or our food supply chain or our hurricane troubles. Our government can't deal with those things. Only God our Father and Jesus Christ our Savior can do that. Let's go back to Psalm 25 while we're here. Psalm 25. Psalm 25, let's start in verse 1 and pick up a few verses. Verse 1, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. We sing that song, of course. To you I lift my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Going down to verse 4. Show me your ways, O eternal. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. David saw that there was a higher level and it was not in man to direct his steps, as Jeremiah put it, but it's in God's capacity to show us his ways, to teach us his truth, to walk in his paths. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Do we wait on God all the day? Is he our constant companion and constant thought in terms of our needs? Sometimes we try to solve them ourselves and we can do things for ourselves and God demands that we do certain things for ourselves, but there are things that we cannot do for ourselves to which we should look to God for. Verse 12, who is the man that fears the eternal? Him shall he teach in the way that he chooses. God will teach us what he wants us to know. He will give us what we have need of. All Israel and ultimately the whole world will seek that education in the world tomorrow. In the kingdom of God and the millennial rule of Jesus Christ, education becomes a huge issue. And we're told repeatedly, people will say, let us go up to the house of the God of Jacob and he'll teach us his ways. And we'll walk in his paths. By the way, I, I, say, I say this at some risk because I see Mr. Horchak's gray head in the back of the room. But I've heard lots of education sermons at the feast over the years. And sometimes I get really frustrated with them because we sort of create an environment in which we can, we can do it ourselves. Mr. Horchak gave probably the best uh, overview of what we need to know about education in, in the millennium that I've ever heard at a feast, in 60 feasts. And I, I say that with caution. He knows me well enough to know I'm not trying to flatter him, I'm trying to make a point. <clears throat> but God is going to do what God is going to do and we can be part of it and we can be on the team, but we, we've over sometimes stepped our capacity when we try to anticipate what we're going to be doing in the kingdom. Now this is Larry's opinion. If you've heard contrary, uh, take it with a grain of salt. I remember way back in Spokesman Club, almost 60 years ago, one of our projects was planning a city. We actually had a project in which each of us or two or three of us together, however, were supposed to sit down and work out how you would put together a city and the utilities and the traffic patterns and all of these things so that we could understand what we might be doing in the millennium. 
The church was young. <laughs> the church was new. I don't say that in terms of criticism on the level of attitude or motive. The intent was to help us to grasp that we're going to be ruling the world with Jesus Christ. But you don't want to live in the millennium in the city that I built, do you? Go ahead, say it. You don't want to. No. Okay. Uh, I don't either. I want to live in a, in a city that's built by the sons of God whom God gives the knowledge and the capacity to do that. Brings us to number four, our enlightenment. We're talking about things we can set our affections on. Our enlightenment. When I say that, I don't mean just our personal experience. I mean the fact that God has done tremendous, miraculous things to bring us to the capacity to understand spiritual things. That in itself is an amazing miracle that we cannot and should not take for granted. We know probably this scripture reasonably well, and I'm only going to go to a couple, but let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Again, this was discussed during the feast on a couple of occasions and very well expounded, but I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I used to think that we spent far too little time in the church on this subject, and so I probably overdid it, <laughs> probably preached too many repetitive sermons for the congregations I pastored, but I think this is an incredibly important section of scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, I have to break into it, of course, because it's a long discussion and it's extremely important. If you're not familiar with it, I would encourage you to spend some time in it. But the Apostle Paul is telling the church here that the world doesn't know. Verses 7 and 8, I'm not going to read, but he says that they, they don't understand God. They don't even know who God was. If they had known that Christ was the Lord of glory, they wouldn't have crucified him. <clears throat> and then he goes on in verse 9 to tell us that the five senses cannot discern spiritual things. That's really what it says. It only gives us an example. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard. But we understand that what's saying, it's saying is it hasn't entered into the heart of man what God is doing. We can't comprehend spiritual things. <clears throat> it's said very directly a little later. Notice verse 10, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. <clears throat> For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Now we're going the opposite direction, but it's really the same things as those things that are on a higher level. It searches all things, yes, the incredibly high things of God, the thoughts of God, the ways of God. God revealed them to us through his spirit. If you get discouraged and frustrated sometimes at some little failure you're experiencing, and we all do, probably a good time to stop and think, God has revealed through his spirit things that he is doing, works that he has accomplished and will accomplish that are far too wonderful for me to know. And yet here I am, I know them. I know them. You know how the world looks at it. Well, who do you think you are? You think you know? Who's this kid that gave the sermonette? What does he know? That's the way the world would look at it. You can't tell certain people or certain family members, this is a very precious truth because their attitude is, who do you think you are? What do you think you know? You and I know that we know that God through his spirit has revealed his truth. If you don't know that and don't fully comprehend and believe that, then spend some time on your knees and in your Bible because if God has called you to the truth, you need to be absolutely sure of that that God has revealed to you things that mankind in general will not know until God intervenes in their lives. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Verse 14, but the natural mind does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Ah, so when we think about spiritual things that God has revealed to us by the power of his spirit, we're thinking on a higher level. We're setting our affections on things above. We're recognizing that God is carrying out a continual miracle in our lives in teaching us spiritual things that the human mind generally does not understand. We need to think on our 
enlightenment. I get that word, of course, from Ephesians chapter 1. And I like, of course, chapters 1 and 2 are very enlightening uh, of and by themselves. But let's go to Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment. Paul talks about praying for them, for the Ephesians, and he says in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That's the process we just read about in 1 Corinthians 2. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us. And he goes on and on. We know these things by the spirit and power of God. And it's a wonderful blessing from God. It's a gift from God that mankind as a whole simply does not have, no matter how close you may be to other human beings, family, friends, uh, and so forth. It doesn't matter. That doesn't mean they can understand the truth because you do. God has to open the mind and provide that, as we know from John 6.44 and other places. Number five to think about on a personal level a little bit more perhaps, is God's miraculous deliverance. God's miraculous deliverance. You and I have been delivered many, many times, and we probably can recount most of them. But we also have a hope of complete deliverance, of course, when we're changed to spirit beings. And we also have hope of deliverance through difficult times when Christ himself said, count, you know, I pray that you will be worthy, accounted worthy to escape certain things. I mean, there are things that we think about and meditate on and consider that we depend on God's deliverance. Absolutely. Depend on God's deliverance. I'm probably repeating myself and it just comes to mind because I look back here and see some of my family. But, you know, that older lady you know as Lisa Burnett was at one time a baby I carried around in my arms. And when Judy and I were converted, she was still in the womb. And later we thought we were living in the very end times and the world was going to come to an end as we know it. Christ was going to return, the millennium was gonna be set up and guess what? Our sweet little Lisa wouldn't even have to go to school in this world. Now, some of you younger folks might say, what? But that's true. We actually thought she would probably never have to go to the world's schools and deal with all the issues that that creates. That's how innocent and in a sense how completely confident in what we were hearing we were. Now she, I heard somewhere here in this pulpit, I think I heard she has a grandchild. I heard that somewhere, didn't you hear that? They have a grandchild. you know, life goes on, time goes on. We don't know exactly when and, when and how God's going to do these things, but we do know that he is. He's going to deliver his people. And that deliverance is wonderful and miraculous. Psalm 121, verse 1. Psalm 121, verse 1. <clears throat> Everything gets lost in Psalm 119 when you start looking for these. Psalm 121, verse 1, I will lift up my eyes to the hills, things above. I will look, lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the eternal who made heaven and earth. My help comes from the eternal who made heaven and earth. Can we say that? Do we think that? Do we think about it? Do we meditate on it? Do we believe it? Do we look to the hills, that is, to God? It's important. God is my helper. We read that many times in the various Psalms. God has offered us, in fact, promised us some very specific protections that I don't have time to go through. I will focus on one here that I find overwhelming and I have always appreciated it. It's in Luke chapter 21, Luke chapter 21. Luke 21, verse 14. Ah, what? 
too, too, too far, sorry. I wrote down 14 and I shouldn't have. <clears throat> Christ is describing here the same things he described in Matthew 24, the Olivet Prophecy, and he talks about wars and persecution and famines and all kinds of things. And he says in verse 12, before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. So it's both spiritual and uh, civil authorities, so-called. They will deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. So God's going to use us in those difficult times. And we're not going to be comfortable with it for sure, at least part of the time, but we will be a little more comfortable if we can set our minds on things above in advance, which is what he tells us here to do. Verse 14, therefore settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. Every fiber of our being tells us I wanna be ready for that day. I wanna plan ahead. I wanna to try to anticipate the questions. It's like going to court. I want to know what they're going to ask me. I, know, I want to know what spot they're going to put me on. I want to be able to give an answer. And Christ says, settle it in your heart. Get your head in the right place and realize you're going to have to look to God for that deliverance at that moment in time. And he actually says that here if we read it. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Well, my answer might have been that good. <laughs> Obviously, I'm kidding you. I can't put together an answer about which I can say, I'm gonna answer in such a way that all my adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist it. I can't put together that kind of answer. But Christ says, if you have confidence in my deliverance and faith in my ability to intervene at that time and place, don't worry about it. Settle it in your heart that you're just going to trust me. And that deliverance is a miraculous and wonderful thing that we ought to think about on a regular basis. Not just this particular scene, but this is a very important and focused scene that reminds us of God's power to intervene in our lives and the fact that he's actually saying the same thing. You can't do it yourself any more than I could have. You can't do it yourself. You're going to have to depend upon God. I won't go to chapter 12, but in that context where it's some, a similar part, he says, the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. We have to trust that and not only trust it, but believe it and appreciate it and rejoice in it and thank God for it in setting our hearts on it in advance. Now, I suspect you're a little bit like me and you've probably run that scenario a few times. If you haven't, I, I applaud your faith and settling it in your heart. But most of us have probably run that scenario a few times and try to figure out our strategy. What's my answer going to be? So easy for us to think about life in the typical human ways of those around us. That's what people do. That's what we do in various other uh, physical, material, objective circumstances. I will let you in on a little secret that's probably no secret and is of no interest either, but Judy and I have been thinking a lot about moving out of the place we live and trying to do something different for various physical reasons. And it's tough. It's tough to move. <laughs> and, I'm, and you're listening to a guy who's moved. We've lived since we've been married in 35 houses. We're in our 35th house. Maybe that's one of the reasons it's tough to move. But anyway, we're thinking we've got to do something different for various physical and financial reasons and it's difficult to make those decisions. But those are decisions, we put them in God's hands. We ask for help and deliverance and guidance, but those are decisions God expects us to do something about as well. Those things we can make some decisions on. We can decide what we want to sacrifice, what's a priority, what works, what doesn't work. To a certain degree, we can do some of that ourselves and God expects us to. But when all is said and done, we know 
And we tell God and remind God that we're in his hands and that it's going to take his intervention. And many of you, most of you have been in that situation uh, one way or another, whether it's moving or something else, uh, many times. We don't want to think like the world around us thinks and think that we have what it takes to solve the problem. We don't have to be thinking wickedly to think like the common man. We just are made that way. Paul's admonition to set our, thing, our minds on things above is be in tune with God. I mean, you could kind of put it in that phrase if you wanted to. Paul says, get your mind in harmony with God, in sync with God. Be on God's wavelength. Think like God thinks. In that sense, it requires letting God think for you. God's thoughts are much higher. I won't turn to Ephesians 3.20, but it is one of my favorite scriptures that describes God as, quote, him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly, <laughs> not just abundantly, but exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think. That's the God we serve. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So it's a good idea to be in harmony with him and in tune with his purpose and his plan. Now, as an aside, I haven't covered Philippians 4, verses 6 through 8, and I'm not going to today. Uh, it's a great guide to thinking about spiritual things, and I will refer you to it. It has been thoroughly covered recently by the Fosters, Eddie and Sue Foster, in the, uh, their blog on Life, Hope, and Truth. If you haven't seen that, you might want to look at it and think about it, because it is a guide to thinking on these same lines, whereas I have specifically focused on certain other uh, broad categories. As we wind down here for a couple more scriptures, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, to what is a familiar scripture and one that I hope we will read today in the context in which I have covered this other material. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Therefore, and of course, that always refers to something previous that I'm not covering. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man, this physical human life, is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. So we've often said, you know, as we get older, we get wiser. As we get older, we understand more. As we get older and our converted life is a bigger percentage of our whole life, we understand God better. And I think that's true. If we're functioning and growing with uh, God's spirit, we're better Christians today than we were then, when that, whatever that time period is. So the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed and it's being spiritually focused, spiritually cultivated. Verse 17, for our light affliction, which of course, Paul has described up above, and his light affliction would destroy most of us in a short period. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We're trying to set our thoughts on things that are eternal. We're trying to set our minds on things that are somewhat intangible in a physical, material sense. We can't put our hands on faith or hope or love. They are spiritual concepts that God teaches but have to be present to undergird everything else we do. So we want to be looking at those things that are eternal, thinking about those things that are eternal. That doesn't preclude thinking about what you're going to eat for dinner tonight, which probably just crossed somebody's mind in this room out of this crowd. It doesn't preclude thinking about where we're going to live. It doesn't preclude thinking about what kind of car you're going to drive when your present one collapses, which it's about to do. Been there and done that. It doesn't preclude doing the physical things God intends. We're supposed to live, but live with the context of bigger, higher, more positive things. In Psalm 146, and you can read much of this 
in the Psalms. Psalms 146, I want to go to verse 5, and we'll conclude with this particular scripture. Psalm 146, verse 5. I'd like to read the entire chapter, but the clock on the wall says I probably don't have time. Your mind will be on physical things instead of things above. Let's go to this. Uh, Psalm 146, verse 5. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the eternal his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. I think that's my next sermon if I don't get preempted by somebody. I think we probably need to explore that a little more. The God that we serve is the creator God, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The eternal gives freedom to the prisoners. The eternal opens the eyes of the blind. The eternal raises those who are bowed down. The eternal loves the righteous. God can do it all. All things are possible with God. And he's doing the impossible day after day after day in the lives of somebody somewhere. The eternal watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widow. In other words, the the cast-offs and the oppressed and the ignored. But the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. So God is sorting it all out, and it will all come to God's conclusion in due time. Verse 10, the eternal shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the eternal. I just want us today to see the big picture as we go forward from the fall holy days and the memories of the vision of the feast and the vision of the kingdom of God as pictured in the feast. And that we might think regularly on these big spiritual concepts that Paul calls the things above. Let's set our minds on things above. We serve a glorious, loving God whose thoughts and whose ways are higher than our thoughts and our ways. Let's think on his thoughts and ways, not our own. And let's praise the eternal.